Good evening and welcome to a Tuesday night edition of the Buddy Martin Show and Podcast. Tonight, right here on this show, we've got coming up, Todd Swearingen, former coach who knows what's going on in recruiting, as coach in the high schools will tell us about what's going on there with recruiting. Also, Mike Bianchi pays us a visit and we'll talk some about the PGA, among other things, right here on the Buddy Martin Show. Yes, it's time again for Buddy Martin. Call him up and tell him what you're thinking. But be kind because he's doing the best he can. Better. Stronger. Faster. Mama says that alligators are ornery because they got all them teeth but no toothbrush. Hey! What if the voice calls while you're gone? Take a message. <laughs> Bye! You ready, champ? I'm ready for this my whole life. I'm incapable of small talk. <laughs> but that's why you love me, right? Kind of intimidating to be in the presence of so many great athletes. Good evening and welcome to the Buddy Martin Show and podcast on a Tuesday night. We have more news on a guy whose name has been in the news a lot lately, and that would be Chris Steele, now an Oregon Duck. Well, we saw that one coming probably, huh? We'll talk tonight about that some with Todd Swearingen. He's a former high school coach. He's the chief scout for the Scott Bradley Trophy. Uh, Also a very knowledgeable football fan. Todd will join us in just a moment. We'll get his take on what are, what is going on among the decommits. What's happening with the decommits Florida's had, and what is the mentality? Um, so uh, we'll get that uh, that take from from Todd as well. Um, <clears throat> we'll just dial him up now. Also uh, coming up, Mike Bianchi. Uh, we talked to him earlier today about his views of the Florida football program. Uh, and uh, we're going to take also uh, from him on uh, the recruiting situation, how it has affected the Florida hey, Gators. Right now, this is the voice of Todd Swearingen. He is a uh, coach. Um, and um, uh, somebody dialing in on top of you there. Are you there? I'm here. Okay. Sorry. Um, and, and thanks for joining the program last minute. I wanted to get your take on – you wrote a really good piece on what I call a point of view – uh, and about the the nature of recruiting. And you have a good example of uh, how one time it didn't work. And as you say, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Todd, I want to get to that in a minute. But I want to get to you first about the breaking news that we found out. We're not shocked at all by the news that Chris Steele is going to be a duck. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about a West Coast kid that, anyway, there was opportunistic or not to go back. I mean, you know, he's got to sit out a year. He's going to have to go uh, back to the West Coast. That's where he's from, and that's where he wants to be. And um, I'm a Bob Stoops kind of guy. If they don't want to be in my program, I'll help you find a way to get out of here. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's just you know that's just part of it. Like just sometimes it, it just don't work out. Well, it didn't those, work out. No, it didn't work out. And and I think you did a really good job of writing an overview piece. And we won't be able to read it all tonight, but we will post it online soon. With Todd, we're going to kind of put some perspective on this and talk about maybe some of the views of other people, particularly um, <clears throat> uh, in, in the area of Vanguard, where you know you're familiar with. We might be talking to some folks tomorrow about that. Let me say good evening to Todd and also to to Dan Bond and Brian Snyder, Paul Bell, uh, Becky Smith, Carlisle, uh, Ren Tucker, um, and uh, Zori Baktosh. Lynn Tindall, my man, uh, Quentin Cruz, and Patrick Francis all checking in tonight. Uh, and and uh, we're live here on the program with Todd Swearingen. Todd, um, let's discuss, recap for folks what has happened for those saying, what are they talking about? It seems as though this has kind of blown up to maybe a bigger story than what we think it might be. And as you point out in your piece, this is kind of the natural cycle of things in recruiting that things happen like this but i do want to recap for those folks who don't know 
that uh, the five-star defensive back, I guess he was a five, he was a four or five, uh, who came in from California uh, and that Florida had great hope for him, although there's some question about he, whether he'd be able to break into the lineup. Chris Steele committed, and he was looked like a good addition to the team. And, of course, uh, we know now the story of what he says happened, which had to do with his roommate, Jalen Jones. Uh, he went back to California. Something changed his mind. Some say it was homesickness. Some say it was other things. Uh, and he decided to decommit and did so this week. What happened was a couple of younger kids followed suit on that. Two of them at Vanguard, uh, who were part of the 21 class, not the part of this class coming up. They did not sign anything, and so therefore you can't consider them being lost because they never actually gotten. Uh, we know that uh, Bryce Langston and Tavante Rucker, two very good players, highly recruited, now say they're open. Their recruiting is open. So let's start there, and why don't you explain in your words what you think took place and, and, and educate us about the recruiting process. Yeah, so we'll first let's start with the optics of what happened. So you had a player – who was at Florida and Chris Steele, who left, um, left on his own, entered the portal. Uh, he has a right to do so. Um, during that same week, you had two high-profile recruits that are not even juniors in high school yet. They're both sophomores. They're not even juniors yet, who were committed, which means nothing, and then they decommitted, which that doesn't mean anything either. They just changed their mind based on what gets posted on Twitter. So when the kid reopens his recruitment, well, it was never closed to begin with because the reality in the spring in the state of Florida is this. Once spring practice starts, there's 15 days that the NCAA allows for on-campus contact, which that means the assistant coaches, not the head coaches, head coaches can only go out for two weeks a year, and this is not the time that they can go out. So assistant coaches from every school that plays football at the college, at the collegiate level, they're out recruiting, seeing prospects for the upcoming signing class uh, two years from now. So uh, programs like Vanguard, programs like Jacksonville Reigns, uh, programs like Orlando Edgewater that consistently put out really good players, well, they're going to draw five or six recruiters from all levels, Division two to the Power Five schools, every single day during practice because those coaches have a limited number of days. There's only 15 days that they can do it. So I think the two were connected for some reason. I have no idea why people mm, thought yeah. the Travante Trucker and the Bryce Langston had deal had to do anything to do with um, the steel situation in Florida. It just happened during the same week. I mean, I think if we're sitting here this week and that happens, it's not that big of a story. It's just mm. two guys who aren't even juniors yet that, you know, as they say, decommitted. Which I, I don't understand how you can decommit when you never commit. Right. <laughs> You know, so it's it's the very nature of recruiting. Look, kids change their mind. I wrote it in that piece that I sent you about Alabama's 2015 class. Forty percent of them never saw the field. Well, and you can take that same template and apply it to Dan Mullen's first recruiting class last year. Four years from now, most of those kids won't be on campus. That's just the nature of it. So you can't can't overreact. You can't underreact. I think the one thing that you can do as a leader like Dan Mullen is you can just keep doing what you're doing. That's right. Because obviously he's doing things that are right because kids want to come to Florida. And when, by the way, on June, I think June seventh, I'm going to make a prediction. I think 300 kids or more will be at his Friday Night Lights camp. They'll have a contingent of the top 20 players around the Southeast. Some of those guys will be there, and I'm very certain that somebody will commit to the Gators from that weekend because they always did. Mm -hmm. And then all the momentum, as people say, was lost will somehow be refound that night in the swamp. Mm. I've seen the light. Mm -hmm. I've seen the Friday night light, as a matter of fact. Yeah, uh, and so I said, that's that's coming up here uh, first week of June, as soon as they have that, and then they'll have the second one. Like I said, if you've ever been to one of those in the summer, you're talking, there's easily 300 kids. Now, not all of them are Division One material, mm -hmm. but out of that group, there's probably eight or ten that Florida and Florida State, when they have theirs, and Miami and Georgia and Alabama, when they have their version of it, that's who they're looking at too. Well, those same kids will make that traveling circuit. Well, I, I, you know, Florida's going to have their share of those guys, and there'll be somebody who can play defensive back. I'm quite certain of it. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing in recruiting we know is that rumors go like wildfire. Twitter, of course, being the number one source for that, 
and things began there's a herd mentality of that sometimes and when one kid starts tweeting and whatever and there was a backlash as those who follow the program closely here many of our people do know when gator football players responded and reacted to what they felt like was a bit of arrogance on the part of steel and they began tweeting out pictures of, of kind of standing over the top of him in the dominant position yeah, exactly. and whatever and kind of saying you know you let us down you know and, and basically separating themselves from as if to say we're done with you pal and you know and now some people say well that's bad taste whatever i understand it i mean that's part of the deal when you're a freshman coming in you don't come in there and try to be the big try to be the the, the king you know, you don't walk in there like you own the place. And you and, and then you, you disrespect the team by what you did. Whatever the reasons were, I'm not going to prejudge. I'm not going to say it was a setup, but it sure was suspicious. And something really made his former teammates very angry. Well, I mean, I, I think, too, buddy, sometimes it gets lost in translation on Twitter and all the other social media. Is The reality is maybe he just wasn't happy in Florida. Maybe he didn't see him be himself being successful. I've had that conversation with kids numerous times over the years, coaching when I was in the high school ranks, asking, hey, what do you think about this place? And just pick a place. I don't care. It didn't matter what school it was. They would just say, I don't really see myself being successful there. And you're talking about who's trying to judge the world through their limited lens of this is my experience and I don't like here, maybe I don't fit in here. I don't know. I, look, I, I hope the kid goes out to Oregon and makes All-American and is a first-round draft pick. I think that'd be great. But you don't shut down the program of Florida because the guy leaves. And you don't go on Twitter and bash the kid or make him into, into some demon. Look, there's going to be somebody else that leaves. That's just the nature of, like I said, if you look at the trend, we have a portal now for a reason. It's because they're leaving. <laughs> Yeah. We, we didn't have a transfer portal, mm-hmm. you know, 10 years ago. We got one now, yeah. and that's what happens. And, you know, for the most part, there's a lot of kids that find a place that's better for them. And I think that's the real intent for it. But you don't – I said, you know, Florida, I know they want to get back to being relevant in the national conversation. And the way to do it is to, re- is to recruit really well. But if you have someone on your team that – they're not committed to what you're doing. You're not going to win with them anyway. I don't care how many stars he's got behind his name. All right. All right. Let me get this out of the way now. I know you're not connected to it on a daily basis. And like Mick Huber said last night, there's no way we can keep up with what's going on in the world of recruiting. But there's questions from our people here saying, is there any truth to the rumor that Jalen Jones is going to Oregon? I've not heard that. I wouldn't have any idea how to check it. But uh, have you heard anything like that? I've, I've heard uh, a couple things. Uh, Virginia Tech is the place that makes the most sense. Um, you know, that's where he's from. He's from Virginia. Um, and go back to that part of the country and play. I think that's if he does end up. In a, I think that's how he fits uh, the Justin Fuentes offense. The guy that was at Memphis who took the Virginia Tech job. You know, you can hear things. I always look at where, where's it going to make the most sense for you to go. So, like when Jalen Hurts left Alabama, went to Oklahoma, that made perfect sense. It's a pretty cerebral offense. It requires you to make different throws, and it requires you to run some. Well, that's a perfect offense for Jalen Hurts to go get in Mm. versus trying to run something that's, you know, drop back passing all the time. So I think sometimes you look at what's being said about where this kid's going. Well, I guess it's kind of news. If if Jalen Jones ends up Oregon, well, there was some package deal. Well, I think that was probably an attempt at humor. When a person asked yeah. that, you know, like the irony of Jalen Jones winding up there, which was the reason he said he left. Uh, let me add. I'll be surprised if Jalen Jones is not at Virginia or Virginia Tech or Maryland, okay. one of those three schools. If he's anyplace else, I'll be very surprised. All right. Good enough. Uh, let's talk about um, your piece that you wrote, which is very well done. You, you might ought to start writing one of these days. Uh, you, uh, this piece Tide wrote is about is, isn't always about making mistakes or whatever. Sometimes it just happens because it happens. I'm just going to quote a couple yeah. a couple of things that you said here, um, like your first three paragraph. Um, the very nature of recruiting is unstable because you're dealing with teenagers and outside influences. These two factors combine to produce a wide range of both success and failure. 
The hard reality is that some kids can't make the transition to college life or college football. The ones that do, we see on TV and in the NFL draft. So we're reminded of all the great things that college football has to offer and embodies. However, when a player transfers or leaves for multiple reasons, it's most often viewed as a detriment to the program and a quote-unquote killer for future recording. recruiting. I found a perfect example to show this is simply not the case and that attrition is a natural part of the process. And you want to describe the 2015 team of Alabama. They signed 24 players uh, and what happened to them. So you, you found a sample to show that this is the natural course of things with recruiting even in Alabama. Yeah, it's, I mean, so you take Alabama, which has been the standard of recruiting now, them and Clemson, they're fighting out every year for one and two. And then usually the argument is, well, those kids leave because, you know, there's four All-Americans in front of them. Well, that may be true to a degree, but they're not leaving Alabama going to – now, I will give you a caveat. Alan Kamara did leave Alabama and go to Tennessee and have a great success and get drafted, mm-hmm. but he's the one-offs. Most of the guys that leave the Alabama program go to Kansas – or Scuba, Mississippi, and play mm-hmm. at Northwest Mississippi Junior College. Because yeah. that's where half of those kids were. That's a real place. Scuba, Scuba Kansas yeah. is, a real, is a real place. Yeah. 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 Scuba, Mississippi is a real place. Mississippi, I mean. Excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and the reality is that 2015 signing class, 40% of them, four years later, weren't on campus. Mm-hmm. So you take the school that right now, if you had to say that the last 10 years is the best in college football, the best at recruiting, the best at putting players in the NFL. Almost half their signing class from a signing class of 24, which is a you know pretty large signing class. Mm-hmm. Half of I'm almost half that class didn't make it four years later. Now, true, four of them got drafted, ten of them were on the campus, but there was ten guys left. That's 40 percent of that class that they signed. And we're talking about guys that were ranked as four stars. These weren't a lot of project kids, you know. Always a two star. Let's try to turn them into something. No, they were recruiting the best guys in the country, and they couldn't make it there. And then. Mm-hmm. Attrition, like we talked about, look, it's part of everywhere. Uh, look at the NFL. I mean, uh, I was looking down the Saints roster today, just out of nature, looking at, you know, uh, Gardner Johnson, some of the guys, I'm like, gosh, there's looking at it, where, you know, I compared it to last year, just in the NFL, just in the, in the NFL on one team, and that's a small sample size, there's seven different defensive backs on that team, and that's the New Orleans Saints, and they can sign anybody they want. No, yeah, for sure. All right, let's talk about a couple of kids. And I guess we can go ahead and say now that we've got some plans for tomorrow. And I talked yesterday with Graham Hall about this. And, you know, how do you understand better what the recruiting process is? Because we only see really one side of it. We don't see the other side. We don't get to talk to the coaches or the players hardly ever. And most of the media doesn't. A few people do. They establish relationships. But – Tomorrow, we are going to be at Vanguard High School, and we're going to be talking to Coach Farmer, you and me, and Brendan Martin will be there, and we will be talking to some of the players. I'm not going to name them yet. Some of them who have decommitted. Uh, And it's going to be a busy time at Vanguard the next two years because there's so many really good players there. Is it two fives and one four, or maybe more than that? I know maybe a couple of threes. How many? Two years. There's two five-stars, a four-star, and three three-stars in that program right now. This is just one program, one school, and one school. probably one probably eight or nine D1 players coming out of there at least, right? Yeah, I think uh, Coach Foreman told me yesterday that in the past uh, three years, they've had six Division One guys and over 20 other players, Division Two or higher, that, that, that have signed scholarships. Mm-hmm. Now, we've been on a pretty good run. Well, I'll say. Now, now of course, it, it may sound like it's a lot of fun for, for Evan Farmer, but it's not a whole lot of fun, as you know. You know him well. You know the program oh, yeah, well. No, that's it. And yeah, it, it's, it's some fun. tough it's times. Good. Plus, he's in a situation of not trying to influence the kids necessarily to do something he thinks is right. But to, he told me the other day when I talked to him about, you know, whatever he told him, whatever you decide you want to do. Because, as you all know, kids who are 15 and 16, you tell them not to do something, they're probably going to do it. Uh, that's the way it goes. So, so we'll talk tomorrow, and as we attempt to learn a little bit about their life and their position, we're not here to bash the kids or put them out, parade them out in front and be flogged or whatever. We just want to hear from their side because journalists don't get a chance very often to do this. 
And thanks to you and your relationships here, we're going to get a chance to go out, sit down, have a brief chat, which we'll have on tomorrow night's program if Mr. Brendan Martin, producer, can get it all done. So what should we expect? You know these kids. Well, I think you can expect uh, to find out some things that most people never get to hear. You hear the reality of what these kids face. I mean, part of it is they get dressed. They're walking out to spring football. Well, they can walk by on the sideline. There could be Georgia. There could be UCF. There could be West Virginia. There could be uh, Furman. There could be four other schools. Well, okay, so now you're a 16-year-old kid. You're not even a junior yet. And you just walk by nine coaches that may or may not impact your future. Mm-hmm. So how do you handle that day in and day out? Mm-hmm. Because the top players, especially when there's three or four at the same campus, they're going to draw those schools every single day in the spring because that's the only time in, you know, until it opens back up in September that they can have on-campus contact. So it's a, it's a very busy time of year. It's a very dynamic time of year for, for recruiting, both for the players and especially for the coaches. If you're an assistant coach, I mean, you're on the road every day during that spring period. They don't go home. Wherever they're from, they're just going rental car to rental car, driving to Ocala, Jacksonville, Tampa, Miami, whatever they're doing, Atlanta. Those guys aren't home for 15 days. So that's the side of it I think a lot of people never see. They just see the, the Twitter side, oh, the kid being committed. Well, you don't know if the coach came in and they, you know, here's the other part but that we're going to reveal, and some of this will come out tomorrow, is that, Okay, the guy that was recruiting, and this is not Florida, but maybe at another school. Maybe there's a school, and this happened, I know, a couple times at Vanguard with the Mark Rick situation whenever he left of recruiting guys and, and what that relationship Maybe they had a relationship with a, an assistant coach that left, and maybe they're decommitting because, you know what, I don't have a relationship with anybody at that school. Yeah, the head coach is still there, but I've only talked to him once. I've talked to the assistant coach. You know, 50 times in the past year, he's been at my house, he's been at my school. Well, now maybe the familiarity and the comfort's not there. Right. I think you're going to learn tomorrow what it's like for them to really be in those shoes of the pressure, the constant phone calls, the, uh, you know, just the opportunity that maybe sometimes they don't really grasp at that age. Like I said, these, we're talking about two guys that are five stars that everybody in the country wants that live in Ocala. They haven't, they haven't started their junior year yet, and they won't until August the 9th. Amazing. And, and, and by the way, uh, I, I couldn't blame them. If I decommitted, and maybe I want to get a little more love. Once you commit as a sophomore, LSU and Alabama and all those schools stop calling you. The coaches don't call you, and you see all these people getting recruited. And it's, it's fun to be recruited when you're young and you're starting out. But then after three years of it, it gets a little bit old. Uh, but on the other hand, you don't want to be forgotten. So as you and I know, there are some 15 and 16 year olds who are really not even, shouldn't even be driving a car for that matter. They're very immature. Oh, yeah. They don't handle it well. Uh, and so they're unstable. So it's a very difficult thing to ask them to do. And, and my heart goes out to them too. So we'll hear from them tomorrow. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. I think, I think that will be a very informative you know, tomorrow night when they tune into the program, they'll hear straight from these kids mm-hmm. that, all right, this is what it's like for me. This yeah. is most of the day in my life. And they'll get to understand what the coach goes through. Because I think sometimes the, the high school coach gets put in a bad spot. Well, he you know, he, he should have done this or, right. or should have done that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? Let's, let's give him a chance to explain what his day in his life is yeah. like and how many phone calls he takes and how many coaches come to the door. Because I'm going to make a prediction, buddy. The time that we're there, I bet you Coach Farmer gets more than five phone calls, okay. and I bet more than two college coaches walk through the door. That's All just right. from the time that you and I. All right, five and two right there, over and under on that. Five and two. Up. I'll take the over and under on five phone calls All right. and two guys walking in okay. face-to-face. I wouldn't they bet against you. Coast, Coastal Carolina, yeah. Newman, I don't know. Yeah. But somebody will walk through that door and want and want – 10 minutes with Coach Former to watch film and tape and have time. And now they're recruiting. And that recruiting. won't end yeah. until Friday at, you know, not, I just come Friday night at midnight. All right, I'm going to go ahead and read the five points that you said you can learn from this Alabama class. And we'll post this piece later on uh, about the 2015 class that didn't work out for Alabama. What happened to them uh, and why? You said, uh, here's what we can learn. Number one, some top-rated players get drafted. Most don't. Uh, number two, the idea that the death chart is so loaded it causes the great players to leave isn't always true. 
If it were, I doubt there were many would leave for Kansas or a JUCO in Scuba, Mississippi. Number three, college football, like life, sometimes just doesn't work out the way you hoped it would. Number four, a solid program with a strong leadership can overcome attrition. Number five, college football recruiting is a strange and dynamic part of the game, and it's likely to remain that way, so deal with it. There you go. Good job, Todd. You can start stealing my work now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know how dry it was, but I guess it was good. It was very good. (laughs) All right, no, it wasn't dry. That was a typo. Uh, all right, my man. See you tomorrow. Thanks so much for your help. Todd Swearingen, he's yep. the chief scout for Scott Brantley. He's a former coach, and I consider him to be an expert on a lot of things, including high school and some college football. All right, we're running way behind, as usual. Uh, it looks like we're going to have a little change in the schedule. David Moulton's tied up. Uh, well, we're going to have Mike Bianchi. You want to boo Bianchi now? Talk to Mike earlier. You might enjoy this interview. We'll have him on tape. We'll chat. Meanwhile, we do have an event called the PGA. Anybody out there follow golf? I know you do, Lynn. Um, I'll be watching. I listened to Tiger today. It was very interesting. And Tiger's become a bit of a statesman, the way he's talking. He's talking more like, well, Nichols and Palmer used to as they got older. So Tiger was interesting today, although he has a lawsuit filed against him, a wrongful death lawsuit. He and his girlfriend. Uh, so, um, uh, Eric Studs is already booing Bianchi. Let's go ahead and get it out of our system. Let's boo Bianchi all together right now, and we'll get his take. Uh, he's actually sort of, uh, really sort of uh, slapping Dan Mullen in the Florida program on the back and uh, kind of uh, talking uh, down to about uh, Paul Feinbaum. But anyway, let's do this. Let's hear from our friend, one of our sponsors and friend, Daniel L. Hightower Lawyer. Come back here, and we'll do some more business. And then we'll hear from Bianchi. Stand by. Job-related accidents create incredible stress on your finances, your relationships, and most importantly, your sense of well-being. When the adjuster is not approving benefits you're entitled to by law, you need Dan Hightower to help you understand all of your legal options. Daniel L. Hightower has been fighting for accident victim justice in Ocala and statewide since 1976. Call Daniel L. Hightower today to better understand all your legal options. 352-629-7777. Daniel L. Hightower, lawyer, fighting for accident victim justice since 1976. Big Gator fan and a good community man. So uh, you need help in the world of uh, legalities? Call him up and uh, talk to Dan. I do. I'll get good advice from him, too. All right, so let's just go ahead and tell you now about Griners. Um, I got some more pictures to the show tonight of some of their stuff they got over there and we'll, we'll show you this is the front door at 405 east silver spring boulevard where people have been going since 1962 that's not really true because it's moved around a couple of times but this is where they are now uh it's uh, downtown in ocala and grinders is dedicated to delivering the highest quality in men's clothing uh while maintaining the high standard of customer service and that i will vouch for they are really great about finding something for you, getting it ready, and even getting it to you. And, uh, you know, they're, it's personal. It's not one of the things they hand off to somebody else. Um, they've been an institution here because they've built up relationships with families generation after generation after generation. I mean, some of you might remember the Peak family, many of them, uh, lawyers and, uh, and Albert and different people uh, in the Peak family. Were there. They, they were dressed all the way through grinders because their parents were partners with Augie back in the store days, and and, uh, and they used to wear grinders. They wore grinders through all the way through uh, University of Florida and, and their athletics endeavors. So <clears throat> people like that keeps going. They keep going for generations. Uh, go by and see for yourself. <clears throat> They have many, many different kinds of clothing for all generations, dress shirts, suits, sportswear, jeans, casual wear, accessories, etc. 405 East Silver Spring Boulevard in Ocala. Go see for yourself why there is no other like it. Grinders, clothing for men, Ocala tradition since 1962. Okay, speaking of institutions, Bianchi is becoming one. Uh, he's the morning talk show host at uh, 969 The Game. I see Adam Reardon's popped up down there sometimes. Uh, and also, um, uh, he, of course, is still a columnist. Yes, there is a newspaper in Orlando, believe it or not. And Mike is a sports columnist. Out to the hotline now, the Red Star split screen. Mike Bianchi from 96.9 The Game and the Orlando Sentinel coming to you live on the road somewhere. I can tell. I hear the tires singing. 
What's up to Mike? On the road again. Just go. can't wait to get on the road again. And Buddy Martin, always, always a pleasure being on your show. Well, always a pleasure to have you on. We've been doing this for a little while, and of course, you never have me on the game. That's okay. That's okay. I'm not sensitive about it. Adam Reardon, you got him now. You don't need anybody else. So, buddy, you're not you're not up by the time I'm on. I'm up before you get on, pal. I'm an early riser. <laughs> but nonetheless, still doing good stuff, Mike. I've been keeping up with you through all your columns at the Sentinel. By the way, you are still a print guy, right? Absolutely, yeah. We're still printing. You think print print's ever going to come back? Uh, is print ever going to come back? Not Trent, print. print. Well, what? <laughs> yeah. Uh, will print ever? Well, buddy, you know, um, vinyl's coming back. People are actually buying albums again. I know. So, so maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe in twenty years, people start, you know, buying newspapers again just to yeah. be sort of retro. It seems to be working that way. My son keeps telling me that, Dad, it's all coming back. Your time's coming back. So there you go. Well, <laughs> there we go. So maybe we'll go back to typewriters and all that kind of stuff. You didn't make the typewriter buddy, there, huh? You were, buddy, I don't know if we'll be around by the time print comes back. Sort of like I don't know if we'll be around by the time the Gators play Texas in Colorado. <laughs> you know, it's funny you brought that up. I got a good friend in Colorado, Joe Williams. He, he, you know, we've been doing radio off and on for 30-something years. We talk about Texas all the time. And, of course, Colorado sometimes, because we both used to cover them. And we said, let's make a goal. Let's see if we can be there in 2028 when they play. <laughs> <laughs> That's our goal. So, speaking, That's goal. I like yeah. it. speaking of which, uh, you, uh, you kind of put the kibosh on the old Georgia Bulldogs here a couple of weeks ago. Good column about how you thought Dan Mullen was uh, going to – I wouldn't say put Georgia in his taillights, but at least you said they're closing the gap and he's going to put an end to this rain soon. And, uh, you know, you got a little bit of heat about that, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, essentially, you know, I've always thought Georgia was a bit of an overrated program. Mm -hmm. In fact, I've always thought it was a lot of an overrated program. We all know, I mean, you, I know you talked about on your show a couple weeks ago, you know, 14K day, and it's been 14,000 days plus since Georgia won in that, it's it's only national championship of the modern era, and I just think Georgia, and, and you know maybe maybe I, maybe I still have a little bit of Gator bias mm-hmm. in me, buddy, but I, I just think Georgia's fans consider themselves, you know, among the elite of the elite uh, football programs. Where I don't think history bears that out, especially recent history. So yeah, I think Georgia's overrated, and I do think Dan Mullen is closing the gap. Now, the last couple of weeks for Dan Mullen hasn't been very good no. with the, you know, the, with the, you know, the Chris Steele situation, the Jalen Jones situation, um, things like that. But I do think Dan Mullen, as a coach, and and I do think he's, he's showing he's a pretty damn good recruiter as well, I think he's going to close the gap. But you're a good guy to ask this. You're, you're a historian. It seems like it seems like the Florida-Georgia rivalry over the years, dating way back, you know, the Vince Dooley. seems like one coach has always been superior to the other school's coach, whether it was Vince Dooley and all the, you know, the Gator coaches in the 70s and 80s, whether it was Spurrier. Even Mark Richt, I think, was, well, I guess Urban Meyer. Urban Meyer was superior. Um, it seems to me like Kirby Smart and Dan Mullen might be the most evenly matched coaches that these two schools have ever had. Hmm. So far, not. Uh, Kirby's got the upper hand. So much. You just opened up Pandora's box here because we can go back on this a long way and talk this for the next two hours. But since we only got about eight minutes, we probably need to get in a little faster. Okay. And, and, this, and that is, you were covering the team. I believe you were in Gainesville when Spurrier came in there and took over. Oh, that's, maybe you weren't. might have been gone by then because Harston was there. But the bottom line was is that you remember – Steve making such a big thing out of Ray Goff, bragging on the recruits that they got. Talk about all those great players they got. I know Red and Black Magazine did a piece on the great material that Georgia had. And Steve kind of resented it. And when he beat Ray Goff again, he said, I wonder where all those great players were he recruited, you know? And remember what happened. Georgia had all those great players, quote-unquote. And what happened for the next 12 years? 
Didn't quite go yeah. that way. Right? Yeah, except he didn't call him Ray Goff. He called him Ray Goof. Goof. Ray Goof. Ray Goof. He did, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, look, it's happened. I'm not going to say it's going to happen. I mean, look, I would insult the fans of Georgia by calling Kirby Smart Ray Goff or Goof, but fact is, don't just mail it in and say it's over. Georgia's going to win it all for the next 10 years. I'm like you. I'm not buying that that's, that supremacy. No, and I think Dan, I'm at the one knock against Dan Mullen, buddy, even uh, going back to his days as an assistant coach under Urban Meyer. And, of course, when he went to Mississippi State, the one knock on him was, oh, he's not a good recruiter. Mm. Well, that's because he was at Mississippi, Mississippi State. Mississippi State. <laughs> I think so. At Florida, he's been – at Florida, he's been a, a a much better recruiter than people think. I mean, you look at next year's class as it's shaping up. It, it's a top five, top six class if he if he holds it together. So yeah, I think he's going to recruit at the level of Kirby Smart, and if he can recruit at that level, I think he's a good enough X's and O's coach to be able to compete and beat Georgia uh, on a semi regular basis. Mike Bianchi, ninety six nine, the game Orlando Sentinel, Mike. I know you don't follow the nuts and bolts of recruiting, and I don't either, but lately I've had gotten into it a little bit after the decommit started happening. You know, you mentioned the steel decommit, and then there were three others subsequently that happened, four or five stars, I think maybe even four, four altogether. And two of those kids are from Ocala Vanguard, and they're sophomores going to be juniors. And it's raised a whole big thing about whether or not it's even legitimate to say we got to commit from somebody who's 15 years old who's a sophomore, and, you, and the fans go nuts. Oh, my gosh, we've lost all our 2021 class. Are you kidding me? Football might be dead by 2021, for crying out loud. And kids change your mind. Now, look, I know it looks the outward, the outside in, especially Georgia fans, like he's lost his grip on his stuff. But the reality, do you think it's that finite that we can start talking about the decommits from 2021 making a difference right now? No. Now, if he if he were to start, you know, if he started losing a bunch of 2020, I mean, next year's commitments, yeah, that would be troubling. But uh, as far as I know, he hasn't lost any commitments mm. for next year. I mean, buddy, kids change their mind all right. the time. I exactly. mean, I mean, by the, I mean you, you say they've decommitted. Well, but, you know. In six months, they could recommit again. We, we right. th- th- these recruiting terms like commit and, and verbal commitments mm. and decommitments and recommitments. I, I mean, it, it's gotten a little bit out of control, and, and now we're seeing it also once they already get in school. I mean, they, they they get in school, and you know, three three months later they want to transfer. So uh, again, I I don't really, I, I think kids ought to be able to transfer, but. To me, it's it's almost like we're creating a quitter's mentality with this transfer portal. I saw your column in your show about that recently. I can't say that I agree with you on it. What I do agree that something's gotten a bit out of hand when you can sort of blackmail your way into a, a transfer where you don't have to sell out a year, and that's what some people are accusing some of these guys of. Well, he was you know he was abused because he didn't get this. He was whatever it was called a name and all that sort of stuff. We can let it play next year. I think that's way too lenient. I think that needs to be investigated. The problem is the NCAA didn't have enough people to investigate all those things. Yeah, and you know, and philosophically, philosophically, kids ought to be able to go play where they want. I mean, co- I mean we all know coaches. Coaches can transfer whenever they want, and they don't have to sit out a year. So why why are kids tied down to a program, especially if a coach leaves? And the, yeah, so. Philosophically, I think kids ought to be able to transfer. I, I just, I just don't like the way it's going. Like you know, you know, like like if a if a kid's not starting his true freshman season, he he's going, you know, he's going to transfer or, or 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 like Nick Saban brought this up a few weeks ago. If I, if I discipline a kid and he doesn't like it, um, he might transfer. Is that good for the kid that he's just gonna, you know? I'm trying to teach him to do the right thing, and he doesn't like it, and he transfers. How's that? How's that a good thing? It's a problem for sure. A couple more from Mike Bianchi about Dan Mullen, and I'll let you get back to your. You're probably going to play golf or something. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, <laughs> <laughs> there was a recent. You had this on your one of your twitters, one of your tweets 
uh, you when they and I did the same thing on my show talking about the ace a, the ACC and SEC coaches being ranked one through twenty eight. I don't agree with a lot of it, but nothing either here nor there. But they did have Dan Mullen third, third best in the two, two conferences. What and this was a guy that was kind of independent. He wasn't a guy that was necessarily pro ACC or pro from Charleston or SEC. I believe I don't really know him. So Charleston, South Carolina, yeah. Yeah. So what do you? What do you make? Is this thing real? And what does Mullen have to do to really establish, obviously, win himself as a premier coach? Well, the way I looked at those rankings that this uh, one writer did, it, it, it was sort of like, sort of like you know, a lot of times in in, in college football or you know NBA or NFL, the coach of the year is the guy who does the unexpected. All right, he he takes a team. That's considered bad, and he makes him good. That and that, to me, that's why Dan Mullen was ranked so high. I, I don't think Dan Mullen is the right. You know, if you were to take his his overall uh, uh, achievements throughout his career, I don't think he's the third best. I think Jimbo Fisher should have been ranked ahead of him. Kirby Smart even probably should have been ranked ahead of him. But when you take what he did this past season and took over a four and seven team that was a mess under Jim McElwain, and he turns him around in one season, and he gives, you know, changes the culture, changes the offense, uh, gets the offense up and running again. So in that respect, yeah, I think Dan Mullen this past year was the third best. If you just take a one-year sample size. So, you know, the the, 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 the challenge is he's got to be able to sustain it. He's yeah. got to be, you know, same with Kirby Smart. Kirby Smart's got to sustain it. He's only been at Georgia three years. And, you know, he's done well the last two years. But, you know, Mark Rick did pretty pretty darn good his first few years at Georgia, too. So you have to sustain it. You have to, And that's why Nick Saban has been so great. He's been able to sustain it year after year after year. That's true. And that's what Dan Mullen has to do, and that's what Kirby Smart has to do. That just reminded me of what I heard Tiger Woods say at the PGA about well, how golf is so great. You know, you you, you, you got to play four decades not for not not one season, you know, yes. and uh, so yes. you got to prove it over a long period of time. So that's happened. So uh, speaking of Dan, um, he became a little bit more like Steve Spurrier with his little prodding of Georgia, kind of chiding him about the uh, the uh, the fact they hadn't won in fourteen thousand days, and you wrote a column about it. And is that does, does he wear that well? Is that a good look for him? I love it. I mean, Paul Feinbaum was ripping him yesterday on, on on his show and said he runs his mouth too much and, and this and that. I absolutely love it. I mean, again, he, he's got to back it up now. I mean, Spurrier backed it up. That's the one thing Steve Spurrier did. But I love the fact that Dan Mullen is engaging. He's candid. He's, he's, he's jovial with, with the fans and the media. He says things maybe he shouldn't say, but but I got to tell you, buddy. After dealing with Jim McElwain, after dealing with Will Muschamp, even your boy Urban Meyer, as much as he won, he wasn't. He was sort of boring when in in his press conferences, and he was sort of you know aloof with the fan base. I love Dan Mullins, the way he engages the fans, the way he engages the media. Um, I think it's refreshing. And, uh, you know, shame on Paul Feinbaum <laughs> for ripping a guy for, for being colorful. Paul Feinbaum might have loved Dan Mullen. That'd be like you ripping ball men. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look who's got talking about a mouth. <laughs> <You know. laughs> mouth yeah. of the South. There you go. All right, Mikey, it's always good having you on the show. Appreciate your time. And uh, we'll be reading you and we'll be talking to you again soon, hopefully. Thanks, Uncle Buddy. We'll talk to you soon. All right, Mike Bianchi, 96 down the game, Orlando Sentinel. All right, tell you what you will. Uh, Mike brings it. He always stirs it up. And uh, you're going to agree or disagree with him, but he makes some good points. I, I do have to say, he continually gets his shot in on Urban Meyer. I don't want to start the Urban Meyer conversation, but he forgets that Dan Mullen came from the tree of Urban Meyer. So he loves, he loves Dan Mullen, but he hates Urban Meyer. I guess hate might be a strong word, but he, he certainly does seem to dislike him even now. Although he did say he thinks it's time for him to come back and be on the wall of fame or the ring of fame, ring of honor, whatever that is. So anyway, um, <clears throat> I heard someone talking about crying. I think it might have been Zach on his uh, show, about how no Gator players ever cried, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, Brendan was talking about people um, swearing people cry, and I I wish I, I went back and tried to find it on Zach's show on the tailgate, and it was about uh, you know big boys don't cry, nobody cries in the Gators, and so and so. And I think he mentioned that Tim Tebow didn't cry, and boy, how wrong was he? Some of you know I wrote a book <clears throat> called Urban's Way, in which I was able to be inside the program for a year, and I was able to go to their locker rooms and. The, the halftime speeches and, and and all over the place and listening on the to the phones and during the game during the they're calling plays and stuff. So I got a really good inside look at the program. And one of the biggest, most dramatic moments came after Florida got beat by Ole Miss that year and wound up winning that. And then the practice then then came the promise. Um, and people saw the promise, but they forget about what happened. Matter of fact. <clears throat> Dan Mullen, uh, excuse me, uh, Urban Meyer went to Tim Tebow's locker room. There's a very poignant couple of paragraphs after the game, and Tebow was sobbing uncontrollably after losing that game. Remember, he went four on fourth and one didn't make it, and, and he, he just, just completely fell apart. And I, I, one of my favorite parts of writing that book was, what do you do when you find your star player who is so, so a mess? They call a hot mess and uncontrollably sobbing. And I thought what he did was brilliant. He just went over and sat next to him and said, let my leg touch him to know I was there. That I was there for him. We just sat there and we, I didn't say a word. I just let him sob. Sometimes the best things we do is when we don't do anything. I mean, after all, the old the old phrase when you talk about doing good deeds, uh, no good deed goes unpunished. Sometimes we think we're helping and we're not. We're saying things that don't. So anyway, that was, a, I thought, a very important part. And of course, you know the rest. Tebow went in and made the promise. And you heard Franz and I talk about it. We sat right there within six feet of, from, of that historic moment. And it just right, and my head was spinning. I thought, what did I just see? I'd never seen anything like that before or since that time. And the fact that the promise was fulfilled, well, that was our Newt Rockney moment for Florida football. That was epic. And I uh, just thought about that, about people crying. Yeah, even Tim Tebow cries. <clears throat> You see this all-time college football programs rating? I, I, I shouldn't even say who did it. I don't even know. I'm a little sick of these all-time this and all-time that. It, it's only right now during this time. I mean, next year will be another all-time this. And you can look at it and you go, your eyes go down and say, okay, where are these teams? And you can argue with Oklahoma's first, Alabama's second, Ohio State's third, Michigan's fourth, uh, Notre Dame's fifth. Look, Michigan hasn't done anything in the last 25, 30 years to speak of. They had some great teams in the beginning. But Michigan keeps getting put up, up there. And what is Michigan? I mean, there's, a, there's certainly a storied football school, but when you start stacking them up all the time, they don't make my top five or six. I'm sorry, they just don't. Notre Dame, yeah, because of the history. USC, falling too far to get up there. Texas, maybe. Nebraska, they were great. Certainly one of the best teams we ever saw was the Florida got ripped by them. Uh, Tennessee, 10. When you look back at the the history of, uh, of that program, General Nagel and what he did, and you know, how he changed football, yeah. LSU, Georgia, Auburn, Florida State, Miami, Florida. I, I don't get, well, I guess I do get, but a team that won three national championships since 1996. Granted, before 1990, they weren't much. I guess this is quote-unquote all-time. Florida's below all those teams. Uh, Miami, Florida State, Auburn, Georgia, LSU, etc. So you can pick your poison, check out, see if you like it or not, whatever. So, yeah. So, yeah, I know, Brendan, you have your copy of The Promise. You shot it. You were there. You're one of the ones. You were shot it. And Fran, you and I in France watched, watched it live. So uh, for sure, that's it. Uh, okay. I want to now tell you, uh, before we take a little break and then go to uh, – I want to talk a little golf. I'm sorry for some of you folks who are not golf fans. But there's significant things happening in the PGA this weekend. Some of you didn't realize they're playing a major this weekend. I know some of you don't care about that, but I do. And we're going to talk a little golf with Bob Herrick of ESPN in a moment. But first, I'm going to tell you about Renstar Medical Research, um, how lucky we are to have them in our community because they do a lot of things, including 
research that is really critical to the health of our communities. Uh, you can go to Instar if you want to have your memory checked. You can go there and apply for a free memory check. And like they say, it's regarded now as a death sentence by some to say you've got Alzheimer's or dementia. Um, and I understand that. It's a scary thing. Um, but you don't have to take it that way because one of the things Renstar does is try to educate physicians and patients about the disease. They've got a number of lectures over there and programs. they got one of them called Basic Knowledge of Alzheimer's Disease. Uh, and, they, and they give working... Uh, they give educate, uh, work hard to educate the patients, caregivers, physicians about the disease, particularly in rural areas. But <clears throat> anyway, Redstone Medical Research has a proven reputation as a high-quality, patient-centered clinical research facility that bring cutting-edge research to Ocala in areas like Alzheimer's, psoriasis, osteoarthritis, migraine, fibromyalgia, etc. Uh, clinical research studies regulated by the FDA and safety is closely monitored by the Independent Review Board. So check out the website, rentstar.net. Find out about a free memory evaluation or call them if you would like to be a part of some of these programs. 352-629-5800. That's Rentstar Medical Research, seeking tomorrow's answers to the health questions of today. <clears throat> um, shout out to a birthday for Gene Pennington. <clears throat> Gene Pennington is from Ocala. His dad was on... Uh, the Gator football team with Fred Monstioka, uh, that whole bunch of guys in the golden era, um, Red Mitchum, uh, Angus Williams, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Angus might have been a little bit later. Anyway, so <clears throat> he's having a birthday in Colorado, right in the neighborhood of my friend Joe Williams. I talked to him on the phone, Jim Pennington. Um, Jim Pennington's dad was Gene, was Gene Pennington, so we just want to say shout-out to him. He said his dad would go to the games, sit next to the Florida Power guy and who was running the scoreboard, and was thrilled to death to be a part of the Gator football program. So happy birthday to the Penningtons in Colorado. Okay, um, <clears throat> let's do this. Let's talk. You got your pick for tomorrow or for, for Thursday? Who do you like in the PGA? We haven't played at a really good golf course. I know that golf course been in several times. If you know anything about golf, you know about this golf course, uh, um, which is on Long Island. Uh, and I had a chance to talk to one of the best golf writers, one of the best writers around, uh, and today, and Bob Herrick. All right, back out to the Renstar split screen, and we're going to go all the way up to Long Island and Beth Page Black, a place a lot of players like to play, and the PGA being played there. This is the first time I know that this guy, Bob Herrick, has worn a sweater or jacket for the PGA. Unless he was at Palm Beach in, in February of 1971 or whatever, when it was chilly. Hey, Bob joins us now, Bob from ESPN. Bob, a little chilly up there in uh, New York right now. Yeah, I've been I've been freezing here for <clears throat> two and a half days. It's, uh, I mean, seriously, I mean, it's been in the 40s. It's, it's, it's barely that. gotten to 50 either of the days. Now, it's supposed to get better. Uh, but not a lot better. Like, it's going to barely be in the 60s for most of the tournament. And that means 50s in the morning, which is, you know, it's, it's chilly. It's not what you're used to, and certainly not what they had at the PGA last last August in St. Louis, where the temperature was 40 degrees different. Yeah. So uh, it's something to get used to, for sure. Yeah, it's a little damp on the island, as they call it. So, uh, well, anyway, I know it's going to be a good venue and a good uh, event, and I want to just start off with Tiger because, well, that's because – he won the Masters, and he's still in the news. And I was watching his interview, and I remarked to my wife as I listened to Tiger talk, he's become a statesman in a way that I didn't know if he ever would. I don't know if you agree with us or not. But some of the questions that he answered, especially the one about golf versus the other sports, how some sports you only have to be good for 10 years to be a Hall of Famer. But in golf, you kind of got to do it over three or four decades and how Jack Douglas did it over like six deck, whatever it was, and how it's more sustaining. I thought that's a brilliant, that's a brilliant comment. Tiger's getting to know a little bit about the game now, and he does speak for the game quite well, doesn't he? He does, uh, and I think this is what we all wondered about how how he would handle that. Uh, and I think I think it, it's maybe something he gave some thought to there uh, during the bleak times when he when he uh, had a lot of time to reflect, you know, when he couldn't play and he couldn't practice and he was, 
you know, looking at uh, a near future that might not include golf. And I think he started to realize, uh, you know, what he had accomplished and, and maybe his part in the game was going to be more talking about the past than playing. And uh, he has really sort of, uh, uh, you know, taken that on. And it's good. I mean, he gets it. I think now when we ask him a question like that, I think he, he realizes that, uh, you know, we view him as, a, as, as, as you said, a statesman, a, a, uh, you know, an authority. And certainly you're, you're going to want his opinion on things like that. And so uh, I just hope that continues to, um, you know, evolve. You know, nobody's been better at that, at that than Jack. Uh, over the last couple of decades, actually, you know, since since his competitive career really wound down, he embraced that role and still does. Yes, uh, he does, and, and and does it quite well as well. All right, so so let's talk about reality of Tiger. He hadn't played in four weeks. Uh, he's been kind of, you know, that's what he does now because his body won't take it. Uh, it's a golf course he likes a lot. I know there's a lot of different people who can win this thing. How realistic are his talents, possibilities of winning this event? Well, I mean, I think uh, I, I certainly think you you shouldn't be surprised if he's there and in contention and has a chance. Um, you know, I, it's hard to believe that his game would fall off drastically, uh, and and he is he has played decently all year uh, and and got it to come together at the Masters. I think where you wonder is after four or five weeks not competing, um, going through the emotional highs and the celebration of winning and all the adulation and, 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 you know, the physical toll it probably took. I think we understand now, like what it, what, what, you know, four days of golf and especially at that level and at that place where the walking is difficult, you know, what, how that takes it out of them. You know, can he come back and bounce back from that and fire, get that fire again? I, sort of think that's a lot to ask um so soon you know it, it, now going into the u.s open it might be different because that's you know another four or five weeks away he has this event to build on he'll have most almost certainly the memorial and then the, it, so he'll be able to work his way into that one a little bit better than this one uh now that doesn't mean it won't happen but uh you know i think realistically we're asking a lot if we expect him to do it again by the way, I like, and I noticed that Dustin uh, Johnson weighed in. I like the PGA in May. I think it's a good way to keep people's interest, and in, especially the PGA, which has had its problems, you know, uh, over the years. Uh, I think it's great. What do you think? Yeah, I think I think they they benefit a lot from it. Uh, you know, often you know being fourth was associated with being last. And, and, you know, if you didn't have any compelling storylines, uh, you know, the PGA became, you know, a little bit of an afterthought. Now it, it's, it gets to follow the Masters, and whoever won the Masters, they take that momentum into the, into the PGA. And nobody's ever going to view the Open, which is now going to be last, as an afterthought. So, like, you know, the, the Open isn't impacted, and the PGA gets to improve its lot. And the U.S. Open is still the U.S. Open. It's not going to suffer at all. Uh, certainly, if, if anybody were to ever win the first two, uh, then, then the U.S. Open becomes an even bigger deal. Uh, and, and then, you know, the, 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 the tour, golf in general, sort of benefits by this condensed schedule. The Players' Championship moved back to March, where I think a lot of people thought it really should have never left. Uh, there's conflict, conflicting views on that, but I think people like it in March. Then you have the four majors. Then the then the tour gets to conclude its regular season with its playoffs in August, and and pave way for football. And let's let's move on, you know, as opposed to dragging it out. So, uh, I think for the game, you know, the PGA did right by itself, and for the general game overall. I think they finally got it right, didn't they? It looks like the rotation is, yeah. I think, perfect. It, although it is a little chilly, I'm sure. Where, by the way, where is the PGA next year? It won't be in cold weather, will it? Uh, actually, San Francisco. Well, it's a little uh, chilly Park. out there. Yeah, a little chilly, so but it's the same weather so every, every month. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, very good. All right, so let's talk about a little some of these players. We talked about Tiger a lot. We could talk about Tiger all day because he's a captivating story. But uh, you know, there, there's I noticed in the and I noticed Tiger referenced this in the final nine, the back nine on Sunday at Augusta. In my life, I've never seen so many guys who could win the Masters. 
with a realistic <laughs> chance. I mean, it was on, it, when you talk about log jams, there was a log jam of all log jams with good players. And that's when I realized, you know, the PGA Tour has got some good players. They got some good players out here, and you can go for anywhere from Kepka to Molinari and back and whatever, and, and uh, these guys can play. Speaking of a few names like that, let me ask you about the realistic chances. Uh, if you want to pick your top three, fine, but I would just wrote down a couple of names that I want you to comment on if you could. Uh, in addition to Tiger, you got to bring up Phil because he, he's a good short game, although I don't think he's going to win it. How about Phil's chances along with uh, – give me Phil, Rory, and Brooks Kepka. What do you think? Yeah, you know, I think Phil, uh, something that's been forgotten is he's finished second here twice. Mm-hmm. It, at both U.S. Opens, he was second here, and Phil still pl- hits it plenty far. Uh, uh, but, you know, again, is he is he going to hit it in the fairway often enough? Right. Uh, you, you, you're just not going to – you're not going to succeed, you know, hitting uh, – you know, four of 14 fairways. You know, you can't do that. You gotta, you gotta hit 10 of 14, 12 of 14, give yourself chances. So I think certainly Phil is capable, um, but it's, it's a long, long golf course and, and his foul balls are going to be played from, the, from, from some very penalizing rough. Uh, Rory is one who I think it's, the, it's, it's perfectly set up for him. He's won all of his majors in soft conditions long golf courses where it's played soft and, and played even longer, but yet that, that, that fed right into him because the greens, the fire was out of him a little bit, and he could, he could uh, you know, use his length to his advantage, and, and the greens maybe weren't as treacherous as they might have been, which putting has sort of been his, his issue. So Roy's played well all year. I know he's had some issues on Sundays, but he did win the players, and, uh, you know, if, if he can get out of his own way, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all to see him in it. And then I like Kepka the best out of them because I just think he's it's perfect golf course for him and mm, strong. He, he he loves having having you know any kind of a any kind of a, a, a reason to overcome. And you know here he was with a great chance to win the Masters. He's defending champion, and yet you know everybody's talking about Tiger. And so you know Kepka you know damn near could have won the Masters, too. Uh, won the PGA and the U.S. Open last year. And his playing a golf course is perfectly suited for him. So I just think, uh, hey, you know, why not? I, I just really like him. And he played pretty well in Dallas last week. You know, so his game seems to be in good shape. Uh, and, 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 and long golf courses and narrow fairways don't seem to scare him at all. Bob Herrick from Up and Bet Pays Black and Long Island. Let me give you these four names, and you'll see what the fourth one is there. Uh, a guy that just keeps playing really great golf, Molinari. Obviously, we know about Jason Day. Justin Thomas has been hurt. Jordan Spieth can win a slam. I don't think his game is ready to win the PJ, but think about it. If he wins, he wins a slam. Yep, exactly. He's uh, He can win the career grand slam with a win at the PGA. Uh, and this is his third-year crack at that. You know, unfortunately, he hasn't won since winning the British Open two wow. years ago. and. He's, 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 he's been trying to emerge from this slump, and he seems to show signs of it here and there, but I'm not sure this is the place you emerge from it. Oh, I mean, he's not really been able to put four solid rounds together for some time. He either has a double bogey somewhere, or he slips up, or you know, he has a bad nine. Or, I'm not sure that best page is the place where, if you haven't done that for a while, that you're going to all of a sudden find magic. Yeah. Um, you know his his foul balls are hard to hard to overcome right now, yeah. especially on a course like this. But you know, I just think it's a matter of time. He's too good. He's going to figure it out. All right, you got anybody you like? Well, uh, aside from Kepka, if I had to go with somebody who's a little bit off the radar, kind of like uh, Matt Kuchar. You know, Matt he's Kuchar. not a not a long ball hitter, but straight. You know. He's straight, and he's he's excelled on a lot of long courses. And you know, if it turns into a into a tournament where guys are missing greens, well, you know, he's just as equipped as anybody to get it up and down. So he's been playing well all year. He's had a he's had a nice season, and uh, uh, you know, I don't know that he's among the favorites because he doesn't hit it as far. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, we don't always see the longest hitters win on these golf courses, uh, and it is a deep field. 
a lot of different guys can get up there, and I wouldn't be surprised if he were in the mix. I'm with you on Kucher. I just wish Ricky Fowler would get over it. I'm rooting for him. I don't know if he's capable of winning it, but we'll see. Uh, a lot of good stories out there. It starts on Thursday. Uh, hopefully the weather gets warmer, and Bob, you'll be out there. Well, no, you won't. You'll be there close to the warm fire and, and the cold beer. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. Bob Herrick, one of the best. Appreciate your time, and always appreciate your writing and your journalistic style, and, and thanks for doing such a good job of covering golf. Thanks a lot, buddy. Take care. Bob Herrick, ESPN Senior Golf Writer. Okay, a little golf talk there. I know some of you don't like golf, but I do. We do a little bit. Good show tonight. Uh, enjoyed having Todd Swearingen on. Well, Bianchi was rather entertaining. <clears throat> Some good comments from all you guys. You were stellar. Appreciate you tuning in tonight. I want to tell you, you see on the top side there, I got some food. Uh, it's time to go get a snack before we go to bed. Ooh, look at those truffle fries. It marks <clears throat> the food they have is, I don't want to say it's gourmet, but it's right up there. <clears throat> I guess you could call it gourmet, uh, because that is part of what they want to do. They want to give you an experience you've never had before at Mark's Prime. Go by and see for yourself what I'm talking about. One of the best restaurants in Florida. One of the best you'll ever eat in. Uh, they got one in Ocala, one in Gainesville. Uh, they've got the great seafood, fresh seafood, premium wines, naturally fresh vegetables, terrific steaks. That's my favorite. Go see for yourself. Call ahead, though. Be sure if you're making reservations for the weekend, especially. Ocala, three... Uh, 5240200097 uh Gainesville 3523360077 they have complimentary valet parking or go online marksprimesteakhouse.com check out what they mean when they say creating a unique dining experience marks prime steakhouse and seafood well the old throat's about to go <clears throat> so it must be time to go to bed thanks for watching um and uh, good luck on your PGA Picks. Good night, everybody.